I'm Eric Maddox, and this is Culture Matters with Chris Smith. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. My name is Chris Smith, and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode 116, and today we have Eric Maddox on the show. Eric produces Latitude Adjustment, a podcast that highlights underreported issues, places, and communities from around the world through the stories of local people. He's also the founder and director of the Virtual Dinner Guest Project an intercultural dialogue and collaborative filmmaking program that connects communities in conflict from around the world. Eric completed his graduate research in international conflict transformation while living in the West Bank and has spent much of the past seven years packing solo across the Middle East and South Asia, setting up his projects. He produces Latitude Adjustment from Spain, where he currently lives. Let's go right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Hey, Eric. Good morning or good afternoon or maybe good evening. I have no idea where you are. I have a bit of an idea because we had a pre-chat, mm-hmm. but I want to um, uh, let you introduce yourself. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good as well. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about business. I mean, talk about you. First of all, you're the guest for today, Eric Maddox. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where do you come from originally? Where are you now? And what would you so called what would be your so called cultural frame of reference? Interesting. Okay, so you got about ten minutes for this question. By the way, what's that? I said you have about ten minutes to answer this question. It's always a long <laughs> question. Okay. Um, well, I'll do my best. Mm-hmm. Let's see where I come from. That's already a little bit complicated. Okay. The short answer is I'm American. I come from the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but I bounced around in the U.S. quite a bit, uh, both growing up and then as an adult. Originally, I come from California, and even there, I grew up in the northern and the central part of the state, which okay. are different culturally, just as far as uh, the West Coast. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, my adolescence and early adulthood were spent in the Central Valley, which is pretty conservative and with kind of rural sensibilities. The early childhood was spent in north of the Bay Area with like, well, people probably know what the stereotypes are about the politics and culture there. And then uh, I went away to university in New Mexico, which is its own interesting mix of cultures, graduate school in Vermont. And then I've lived in Washington, D.C., Michigan, Colorado, North Carolina as well. Okay, cool. And as far as, sorry, I need to drink water. Okay. I've got my coffee here ready, by the way, as well. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So as far as where I live now, also the short answer to that is Spain. So I'm actually in the same time as you are, Central European time. Yep. And uh, my route to getting here wasn't a direct one from the U.S. by any stretch. There were many countries in between and in several continents. So I spent a good chunk of the last seven years 
bouncing around and living in various places and working in the Middle East and North Africa and to a lesser degree South Asia, specifically India, but also sometimes in Sri Lanka and Nepal. And then before that, also my, my studies also took me to the Middle East, both in 2002 and then as a graduate student in, in the West Bank in 2007-2008. Uh, so uh, I, I wound up going to the Netherlands in 2015 to incorporate a nonprofit around some concepts I've been working on for several years. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, uh, met the Spanish girl who became my wife. And that kind of led me to Spain. Right. <laughs> so, and you're R93 right now? I mean, doing all this traveling. I'm what? I'm sorry? Your, your, your age is 93 doing all this traveling? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm behind my ears. No question. Exactly. exactly. So, okay. Complicated, uh, not complicated route, you said, um, which indeed was, is true. I mean, if, if you listen to that, to that history, I'd like to talk about that as well, of course. Yeah. And, um, the other, the, the first question I have, uh, coming from your introduction is why is it that, I I, th- I think I've never met an American that is from where he originally is. In other words, you're born in one place, but you're never there at a later stage in life. Any idea why that is? I mean, I can't speak to your experience of Americans and don't know how many you've encountered, but there's a bunch of us, so I would imagine uh-huh. you've met a few. Um, I don't know. I mean, if I'm just off the top of my head, I would say it's a big country mm-hmm. connected more or less by one language, you know, which isn't to say that there aren't people speaking other languages there, but there's one dominant one. So that means that there's a lot of freedom of movement in a very large space, yeah. which isn't necessarily true in a lot of other contexts. You know, mm. Europe, like if you cover the amount of geography that you cover in the U.S., in Europe, you pass through several countries. Yeah. So that might be part of it. Yeah, I guess that's indeed part of it. So is it, uh, and, and my, I had another question, why actually you ended up in, uh, in in the south of Spain? And I was wondering, indeed, if you were actually trying to escape American winters. But you, uh, you, gave, you gave that away as well. Do you speak any Spanish? I'm working on it, so un poco. You're, yeah. you're working Friendly on it. Okay, and, and hola y adios, that's, uh, that sort of works. A little bit more than that. But yeah, I'm like, I'm working on my A2 level. Uh, A2 level, yes. A2 level, by the way, is uh, is following the uh, European Union, I think, um, line of language development, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, for our American listeners. Okay, yes, because it's all different in different yeah. parts of the world. Yeah. Um, you you said if if I if I read on your uh, on your bio, um, which I found and doing a bit of research on you, uh, that you report on so-called underreported issues from around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. What when is something? Where do you do that? And where when is something underreported? Good question. So I would I would say I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as reporting. Uh-huh. I don't consider myself to be a journalist, but I I would say that I I highlight underreported stories. Okay. And so my role is more as a facilitator, and in certain instances, I take more of a editorial or activist interests in the issue that's being covered. So it's not necessarily, while I very much focus on fact checking and being facts oriented, uh, I, I insert my opinions where I feel that it's necessary and helpful. So that would be one thing that separates it from just strictly reporting. Mm-hmm. And then as far as what makes something underreported, that's yeah. that's subjective. I mean, some of it's based on just what I notice personally, not getting much attention in the news. It's Some of it's based on uh, how I notice certain stories or parts of the world being covered, you know, the things that are being omitted from stories that might be about the Middle East. Why is it that we never hear from these communities? Um, or why is it that when we do, we only hear about it in really simple reductionist terms, you know, in terms of 
poverty, violence, um, or threats to security. So in some ways, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm that filter, but I'm also listening uh, to, to the frustrations of other people who I've met in my travels. Right. You know, it's saying like, why are we never covered in a way that's accurate or if at all? Can you, can you, where do you do this, uh, Eric? Where do I do the podcast? No, where, yeah. Where do you do it? Where, where can people find this? Uh, yeah. So my website is latitudeadjustmentpod.com mm-hmm. and then they can also follow it. They can subscribe through most podcast platforms. So that's iTunes, that's right. Stitcher, yeah. um, Android platform, Spotify, all that stuff. Okay, and and um, so this is where you where you talk about these in uh, a quote. I'm making air quotes here. Underreported issues, correct? Yeah, and I mean it's it's well, it's not just me talking about it. There's depending on the episode, I may or may not talk a lot. In some cases, it's really just me asking questions and, and allowing the other person to speak. But there's always an interview involved. That's mm-hmm. always the focus. Mm-hmm. It's passing the mic to the people whose stories or communities or issues aren't being covered and allowing them to speak for themselves. And then I might bookend that with like a speed history lesson, as I call it, mm-hmm. um, or some of my own personal insights, especially if it's a place where I have direct experience. Right. And can you give us some examples uh, of, of like issues that have been uh, that have been on your podcast? Ooh, sure. Um, let's see. The, the last one was uh, speaking to a guy from the Sahrawi community. For those that don't know, uh, Western Sahara is the country to the south of Morocco that's been occupied by the Moroccan government for it's about four It's a disputed border there still, right? I'm sorry? It's a disputed border between that country and Morocco. Yes. Well, I mean, no country recognizes Moroccan sovereignty over that area, but mm-hmm. they're the occupying force. Right. And uh, so that's the last episode. And before that, I, I interviewed someone who did their research on uh, sex work and sex workers' rights in India. Okay. Um, I focused on, I interviewed a Mexican guy about what was happening on the border, um, U.S.-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've interviewed a, a range of people from different refugee communities, so Afghanistan, uh, as well as Syria. Um, I'm probably going to be doing one with someone from Yemen and more people from Syria, mm-hmm. and also, uh, let's see, someone from Togo, and um, what am I leaving out? Oh, and Palestine and Gaza. Okay. And I mean, there've been I think twenty five, twenty six plus episodes at this point. So there's 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 a range. I try to touch on a wide range of issues and points of view and geographic spread. Okay. So if you if you would focus on say the 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 Mexican uh, the Mexican Mexican person you've interviewed, what does this person tell you? I mean, and what is what do you add to the discussion there? Because I mean, the fifty percent of the audience listening to this Culture Matters podcast is comes from the U.S. The rest is from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. The biggest audience, indeed, is in the United States. I mean, there is a lot of reporting, e- even here in Europe. There's enough reporting on 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 this whole Mexican wall thing, uh, the the um, the caravan of immigrants coming from Latin America or, or say Central America through Mexico. What do you add, or what does this person add to the discussion? It's a really good question, and I'd also. Uh, just point out that my audience split is pretty similar to yours. I think it's more like maybe 60% U.S., 40% the rest of the world. Uh-huh. And I want to kind of shift that more to being more international. Okay. Um, so, and that's to say that like I'm, I'm taking kind of the same audience split into account right. when, when producing my content and selecting guests and thinking about who might be listening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a fair point because 
you can research certain things online if you just want to learn about demographics and statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's plenty of people uh, that are self-proclaimed experts or universally recognized as authorities on different subjects. So why speak to just why speak to a regular person, you know, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Um, because they're going to have their own unique perspective that's informed by like life on the ground. And that's what I really want to challenge people to do more of, myself included. And this is a part of the journey that I've been on. And that is to ground our assumptions, our judgments, um, and uh, our questions in the lived realities of other people. Are those going to encompass the sum total of like the quote unquote Mexican experience? Of course not. You can't do that with one person. You couldn't do that with a massive population sample. Um, or without a massive population sample. And I wouldn't claim that that's what I'm doing, that this is some authoritative um, final word on any given subject. Right. But, I mean, I try to be thoughtful in the people that I bring on the show, and I try to also pose challenging questions, you know, where appropriate and how where I think they'll be informative. Can you give so an example? It, Can you yeah. give an example of typically of this interview that you did, did with this person from Mexico and, and what, what the answer was? Sure. So uh, an example of a challenging question? Yeah. And, and maybe, I mean, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, you're, you're more describing what, what's going on right, and I'm, I'm uh, interested in maybe a story behind it as well. Sure. I mean, well, the first thing I would have people do is just go listen to the episode. Um, cause, of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll do my best to paraphrase, but it's been some time. It's been a couple of months since that conversation. Um, I mean, I, I try to ask the questions that I think that a, an audience that represents the political spectrum in the U.S. and elsewhere are going to ask, you know, not just lob softballs that that are just going to cater to people with maybe a more liberal bias, mm-hmm. right? So I, I asked just about, well, do countries have the right to defend their borders? You know, what's wrong with uh, the approach of one position over the other when it comes to border enforcement? Mm-hmm. Can we really live in a world where we just erase them all tomorrow? You know, right. these are the questions that get asked by people on the center right or the right end of the U.S. political spectrum. Yes. Yes. And I want to make sure that, that those concerns get addressed. You know, whether I agree with their assum- the assumptions that are built into those questions or not, I want to address the questions. Right. And, and what, what's an answer that comes out then from, from this Mexican perspective? I'm going to let people listen to the episode and okay. have the guest speak for himself on that one. That's good. Okay, well, we'll put a note in the, um, in the show notes because of... Um, or with the link to your podcast, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you have traveled quite a lot. I mean, India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Middle East, West Bank, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, by the way, how was living in the West Bank in Israel? How how was that for you? Uh, you mean as far as security or culture? Uh, as, as, as lifestyle, I mean, in terms of, of in, in, in also security, or maybe that's an exaggerated thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Well, to address the last comment, it is exaggerated, I would say, for the right. most part. In as much as I never looked over my shoulder worrying about my safety, and I spent about five months in the West Bank, and I think three months of that living in a refugee camp in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, where to start on that issue? I just think that so much of what's going on with that conflict it suffers from a gross bias in the media and Frankly, what I saw on the ground didn't approximate what I thought I was going to see. Okay, you know? where's, where's, what is the gap? What is the what is what's been reported, and what is your experience? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. I know, man. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> that's huge, um, and and I don't want to be evasive at all. I'm happy to answer that. In fact, I I mean I, I make a point of doing that all the time. In yeah. case I get, but, but it's hard to figure out what the entry point is. Um, I think the idea that 
that it's not safe that that Americans won't be safe there, that Westerners won't be safe there. Um, I've met Israelis in the West Bank, you know, like <laughs> that that uh, are more curious about what's actually going on in the occupied territories. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was one of the things that I realized was that there's nothing to fear here. I kind of knew that because it wasn't my first time in the Middle East and I mm-hmm. talked to other people who had been there. You know, I did my homework before I went. Sure. But, uh, but, I, but I also found that in the U.S., I think we tend to be much more afraid of having an open conversation on this subject. Mm-hmm. Israelis and Palestinians aren't as afraid as Americans seem to be about just having an open and frank dialogue about some of the points of controversy and disagreement. I spoke yeah. with people from all different backgrounds. And I mean, Israeli settlers, plenty of Israeli soldiers. I had my debates with them on buses and in the street. Uh-huh. Um, and obviously I lived with Palestinians who spoke to plenty of them. And that was the focus of my graduate research was collecting oral histories from both sides. People who had gone through the 1948 war and directly experienced like the, the first wave of Palestinian refugees, what they call the Nakba or the catastrophe, and what Israelis call independence. Okay, good point. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I do ask these questions, and they're, indeed, this is a, a topic in and by itself that you can talk for hours, mm-hmm. maybe days about even as well. Um, um, I was thinking as well, I mean, you're, you said you were born and raised in the United States, pretty much across the country, left, right, and center. Um, then you've been exposed to different cultures as well for quite mm-hmm. some time. There were not like two-week holidays to Paris or something. Is this the, the, Has that changed your view as being a born and raised American of your own country, the United States? I'd say so. And um, in, in, in what way does yeah. that how does it does it make you more open does it make it make you more critical um i don't know uh yeah i mean where to start with that too that's i mean that's a great question first of all and it deserves a thoughtful answer <laughs> that could also be a very long one so let's see i'll try to think of an example that might be helpful yeah i first of all i come from a pretty conservative background mm-hmm. like i was raised in a in, I mean, both from a religious and political standpoint I was raised by Republican voting Christian evangelical parents okay. in the central part of California. And for people who are familiar with the U.S. or California, know that that's the part of California that's more like Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so I had kind of an attending worldview, you know, that one might kind of assume uh, mm-hmm. without wanting to just cater to stereotypes. Um, I had more conservative outlook on the world and America's place in it. And it was really in, as a response to what happened on September 11th and my curiosity about, about those events that I decided to enroll in Arabic classes in Egypt and go to the Middle East about a year after, so mm-hmm. in 2002. And my first encounters with people uh, in the first few months uh, were in education at street level, where I found myself having arguments with people and kind of leading in with my assumptions based on my upbringing, my background, and my failure, and, and my and my. Uh, lack of exposure to different points of view and and being outside my own country mm-hmm. in that bubble. And so it, it just started me on a path to questioning things that I just kind of accepted as truisms. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's the choice you're presented with when you're in that situation. You can either kind of just retreat and find ways to rationalize maintaining your viewpoint, or you can entertain maybe the fact that what you've accepted to be true uh, is, is inaccurate or the reality is more complicated and nuanced. Mm-hmm. 
I did my best to do that. There's people that would accuse me of still having a bias, of course. Yeah, of course. And I do have one. I think we all do. Yeah, sure. But um, but I've tried to I've tried to stick with what I first learned when I first went to the Middle East, and that is that you can be really certain of a point of view um, up until you're confronted with reality, mm-hmm. and and so to lead with questions rather than assumptions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I try to. That's the message that I try to promote in the work that I do. You know, I have this nonprofit. Aside from the podcast, I have a nonprofit that connects people in different communities for these online discussions over food. It's mm-hmm. called the Virtual Dinner Guest Project. And I have both sides make films together based on answers or based on questions that they ask each other. So I've done that between India and Pakistan. I've done that between many countries in the Middle East and North Africa and Western countries, the U.S., Europe, et cetera, uh, Latin America, all over the place. And what I'm doing is not necessarily showing people how I'm right and what I've learned. I'm still learning through that process and trying to take people on a journey that I'm still right. on myself. Right. Yeah. So if there's one specific example of like a thing that I've learned to look at more critically, uh-huh. I think it would probably be nationalism. And it really took me being outside the U.S. to even recognize what that meant. You know, American um, nationalism. Yes. Yeah. American nationalism. Uh-huh. And that, you know, how would I put this? Like nationalism is what we call patriotism when the other guy's doing it right? Sure. in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, and I know some people will say that that's oversimplifying and that there are legitimate forms of patriotism. I'd be happy to have that debate. Mm-hmm. But when I was in Egypt and kind of the lead up to the coup there, like when things were starting to go south during like after Mubarak had been deposed and I saw some of the flag waving that was going on and some of the failure to ask fundamental questions um, and what looked like the beginning of some oppressive forces. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were things that bothered me and there were things that gave me pause when I realized, you know what, I've seen this somewhere else. I've seen some of this behavior somewhere else and I've even engaged in some of it. And I've seen it in my own country. And that's not to say that it's identical, what I saw, but there were things that reminded me of home. And, and that weren't terribly flattering and got me to start questioning, okay, what is going on? When does, when do, when do the acceptable forms of being proud of where you come from um, stray into being uh, unaccepting, close-minded, and what most people will call like the dark side of patriotism, if, if it's ever legitimate, national. Okay, good point. Interesting, interesting um, uh, explanation you give there. It's um, I've se- I've seen that with more with more Americans that um, say have been exposed for a significant amount of time mm-hmm. outside of their country and been in mm-hmm. contact with the with other cultures indeed as well. They're not necessarily more critical, but they understand their country. They seem to understand their country better. And I think that's that goes not only for you being American, being now living outside of the U.S. I think it goes with any culture. Looking at myself being a Dutchman, living I'm here now in Belgium for 13 years or something, mm-hmm. and I, I I look at my own country dif- different. I understand it. There are certain things I like mm-hmm. and certain things I I dislike, um, and indeed, like you said, are not very flattering uh, about the Dutch in this mm-hmm. case. So yeah, it's a, that's a, a good explanation. You you seem to be like a a, a multitasking person because that you do a lot more um and this is what i'd like to segue into the the, the virtual mm-hmm. dinner guest project mm-hmm. can you explain uh, tell us a little bit about that what do you do how does that how's that set up sure so i mean first of all let's give some background on it that was a direct extension of my time in palestine and doing those interviews with israelis and palestinians um, where i would just go literally sit in people's kitchens 
and interview them about like their personal histories. Mm -hmm. I ended up filming that and then cutting it into a really basic film that I then put into a few film festivals in the U.S., really small ones. Mm -hmm. And from that one, a small grant to do a similar project on the U.S.-Mexico border. Okay. And about a year into that process, realized that I was in over my head <laughs> and out of money. <laughs> and that I, but that I had amassed a certain number of connections and also an interest and familiarity with the subject that I, and I wanted to continue. So mm -hmm. I thought, what can I do on basically no budget that's going to be unique and also meaningful and more immediate? And that's where this idea of connecting people in real time mm -hmm. over dinner came from. And also it was just a logistical, um, it was a practical way to address a logistical problem and a safety issue, which was that I wanted to do I wanted to show people what was going on in, in Juarez, Mexico. This is 2011. So this is still during really nasty violence. Mm -hmm. I think at the time it was still the murder capital of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and just across the river from El Paso, Texas, which is one of the safest big cities in the U.S. And you're, you're talking about so, Mexico, the, the first city when you cross the border, Juarez. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Good. Um, so like literally just across the bridge mm -hmm. on the, um, the Rio Grande. So, so yeah, I decided how... Why don't we just connect Americans and Mexicans um, directly in real time and have them discuss instead of me interjecting my point of view into the narrative? Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. I, I pitched a story idea to a local newspaper in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I was living at the time. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going down to water several times and setting up Skype accounts in Mexican families' houses and then launched what became the Virtual Dinner Guest Project, which is this kind of this thought experiment. Mm -hmm. What would happen if we got these communities together, if Americans could actually talk to Mexicans in a, who are living in a city that Americans used to travel to a lot, mm -hmm. but now no longer can or won't. Right. And and also giving Mexicans the opportunity to speak for themselves and and also in kind of a, a semi-public way in a, in a community where it wouldn't necessarily be safe to go out and do that in the street, mm -hmm. you know, or meet in a public space. So that's how it started. And this was going on in 2011. So at the same time, all of the political upheaval was happening in the Middle East and North Africa. Mm -hmm. And I had already been to the Middle East a couple of times. And of course, I was following all of that closely and wanted to get back there. So the long story short, I crowdfunded the beginnings of this project, wound up uh, going to Beirut in February 2012 and more or less haven't looked back which isn't to say that like I immediately achieved financial sustainability and haven't had any problems. I've been long, lean, long, months long periods where I've just been really struggling, you know, and I've, I've slept in closets and on people's floors and I had to deal with a fair amount of discomfort mm -hmm. just to keep this thing uh, with a pulse um, for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I mean, it's been about 80 connections, I think at this point between 20 countries across five continents. And uh, it's been, it's been an interesting journey. I've and, been and, in and, and what, what is it that you places. do, Eric? What what's what happens? Because it's called a virtual dinner guest project. Yeah, yeah. I should probably go into that part. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, how it works is this: we have uh, five to ten people in two different communities that are either uh, communities that have a, some sort of political or cultural conflict, or they have a shared set of uh, challenges. Mm -hmm. So it could be solidarity or conflict that are bringing them together. Okay. Right. They sit down. And they have a meal together over the internet. And this is usually students or civil society workers or people or artists, people that would have some interest in doing something like this. Right. Um, and uh, universities tend to see that benefit immediately. They sit down, they have a discussion where we focus on like a critical analysis of our respective communities' news coverage of the other. 
-hmm. We exchange news articles ahead of time and discuss them. And then at the end of those 90 minute discussions, each side trades a final question, one side to the other. And whatever question you receive from the other side, you then have about two weeks to take a camera, go down to the streets in your community and interview the local people with this question and then post it online in the form of a, about a 10 minute short film. Okay. And in that way you answer the question that's been given to you, but you also get outside of like the insular environment of a closed conversation and post something online that everybody can benefit from and learn from. Right. And they come back for one more encounter where they discuss and debrief what they've been through and where they ideally build relationships that last. And I've noticed what's been really fascinating is to see the level of familiarity with which people address each other between that first encounter and the second one. Even though they don't really have much contact throughout the course of making that film, it seems to be the knowledge that they know that somebody else is struggling and creating on their behalf mm -hmm. and that they're doing the same that creates this connection. Right. So that's that's the project in essence, and we've done it in a, in a few places. So it's th th those these these two groups they meet they meet virtually twice. Uh, mm -hmm. First time is is getting to know each other, and the second time is they give they come back with the answers that they were um, uh, to the question that they were given yes. on, on on each each site. Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. And and why do you pick um, solidarity solidarity or conflict? Why not educational system or food or hygiene or I don't know, um, just or love or something like that. Why do you focus on this? <laughs> well, all of those things are welcome. Like the topics, I, I'm I'm not domineering in how I okay. moderate these conversations. So okay. they start off discussing the news articles, but if they want to talk about Justin Bieber or football right. for a while, that's that's welcome. I mean, I kind of encourage them to you know keep it somewhat sub substantive. Like a lot of time and effort goes into organizing this. If it's just mm -hmm. going to be all trivialities, then kind of what's the point? Mm -hmm. And, and also oftentimes, in the, at least in the case of like universities, there's a core structure already that I'm supplementing. You know, it's, it's on a certain subject and that tends to be like what we focus on a bit in our conversations and possibly in our films. Mm -hmm. But I, I try to give people a lot of latitude. You know, I, I really just want to engender more curiosity in each other's communities. It's, right. it's, it's the lack of curiosity that and being comfortable in our ignorance that I think is responsible for a lot of assumptions and prejudice and ultimately violence and harm and suffering. Yeah, yeah good point. Do you focus on, on specific regions in the world? Yes, but not, not by design. I mean, because I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East uh -huh. and I'm more or less running this project 90% on my own yeah. um, or more. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, it is where I am. And so that's been do pretty dominantly in the Middle East and connecting to Western countries. And part of that is that they represent what I call critical points of contact. You know, it might be valuable to connect Switzerland to Sweden. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure that those two communities could benefit from learning about each other like any two communities could. Yeah. But how high are the stakes, you know, for their misunderstanding? True. I want to focus on the, the places where, look, there's a lot of suffering as a result of uh, mm -hmm of our engagement with one another's cultures through violence or through ignorance. Yep. So that's why I tend to focus on places that are issues that are charged yeah. in communities where, you know, the misunderstanding has led to a body count. Where the biggest gain is to be got. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Um, you've, you said earlier, I'm coming full circle here that the, uh, you lived in the West Bank, um, uh, Israel, West Bank, Palestine, etc. It's, is there any, any ever any, I know this is again a question, but it's, I'm going to ask the question anyway. <laughs> how do we resolve this or how do they resolve the Israeli Palestinian conflict? 
Who's they? I don't know the, either we or or the Americans or the Russians and the Chinese or the Israelis and the Palestinians themselves. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, I've heard people say, yeah. you know, we just put a put a fence around it and, and close it off and, and come back and check what's what's <laughs> going on after fifty years. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not that. That's not my opinion, but I'm, you know, what's the answer? <laughs> that's good. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say that I'm, I don't tend to think that walls are solutions. They're usually symptoms of failures to address substantive. And now you're talking about the wall that Israel is building between. I'm talking about any walls. Yeah, really. any wall. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the big wall that's already exists on the U.S.-Mexico border. The wall that they're talking about building in addition to that wall. Yeah. Um, take your pick. Right, yeah, the wall yeah, that's, that's separating Morocco I mean, yes. from from yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, uh, from the Sahrawis. So they usually are symptoms of a failure of imagination and um, and a power disparity. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that wall is probably not the answer. Um, I think that well, yeah, I'm trying to think how to manage this as far as time. Um, what I would say is this yeah. to the people who are hearing this and may not have a lot of familiarity with the subject. I would say this is not a biblical struggle. This is fundamentally not about religion. Mm-hmm. And please stop buying into that narrative. Right. Uh, this is a 20th century conflict that's spilled into the 21st century. And it's more about land and political ideology than anything else. Right. And in some ways, it's money is the chief barrier to progress. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the United States in particular, but uh, European Union countries as well, um, are subsidizing uh, elements and parties to this conflict um, in ways that aren't helpful, you know. And I mean, for the people who are saying we should just build a wall around it and check back in 50 years, I mean, I completely disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. But what they, but where there might be a little bit of a kernel of truth to that is what we do, do need to do is stop subsidizing people's ability to not engage. Right. And specifically, the power disparity that I see, and this is going to be unpopular because it's an unpopular view in the West mm-hmm. for the most part, mm-hmm. is that uh, way too much money is being given to uh, fund belligerent Israeli policies. Mm-hmm. The occupation itself, which has been going on since 1967, is fundamentally illegal mm-hmm. and inhumane. Mm-hmm. And I can point to, as people do, uh, abuses um, uh, on both sides, but there's no question to me. Uh, where the where the greater share of responsibility and where the the higher burden as far as loss of human life and suffering and opportunity that this places squarely uh, on the Israeli government, and I don't blame Jewish people. I don't blame Israelis as human beings. This is strictly about the policies of their government. Yeah. Well, it's a. I mean, it, it, again, like I said, this is it's it's one of those questions that deserve a lot more time to to be mm-hmm. answered, if they can be answered at all. I mean, there mm-hmm. there is that. It, it's your opinion, and and I. By the way, I, I disagree with building a wall around around this uh, this or a fence yeah, around <laughs> around that area as well. So, all right, uh, I'm looking at the time as well, Eric, and mm-hmm. um, we are about thirty three minutes in uh, into our mm-hmm. conversation. So, um. I try to keep it around 30 minutes, so sometimes a little bit over, sometimes a little bit under. So I'm going to ask you the, the two final questions. One of them I've asked you before. Can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent? Sure. So I would say listen, number uh-huh. one. Um, listen to people who have different points of view than you do. In fact, those out. Um, and be comfortable with, learn to be comfortable with your own ignorance, would be connected to that one that I think that ignorance gets a bad rap. You know, we're all ignorant on more things than those things that we're knowledgeable about. 
But we live in a society where there doesn't seem to be a lot of tolerance or patience for admitting fault or a lack of knowledge. Uh-huh. We're all fundamentally ignorant on most things in our lives. Right. True. Um, so, and if, if you get comfortable with that, then you get comfortable with being challenged and being open to new things and new ideas and ways of being and thinking about the world. And another is travel. But I mean, I know that the immediate pushback people are going to have for that one is the same that I have, you know, which is budget. Like, okay, that sounds great. If you've got a trust fund or some uh, uh, income that allows you to be location independent, now travel can be travel to the other side of town in your own community. You know, it can mean it can also be travel within the uh, travel within short geographic spread, but within the different cultural communities that make up your local context. You know, go visit an Islamic center, go visit a synagogue, go talk to people who. Uh, are on the parts of your community that you typically ignore on your walk to work or on your commute to work. Mm-hmm. Go out of your way and you might learn something about their communities that makes you more curious about where they come from. You know, might open up opportunities to travel and experience those parts of the world they come from in a different way when you finally do go and visit. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. Um, those are the three points or you have a third one? Uh, I could add a third one. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I would just say, I would just reiterate, which I think underscores all of these points, which is uh, challenge yourself to go outside of the familiar, you know, and that extends well beyond just cultural competence to a lot of different areas of life. But yeah, if you want to understand a culture, it's not about just scrutinizing it and examining it as if you're a scientist or somebody looking into a fishbowl, right? You're going to have to get in there and, and get uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, and expose your own and be and expose your own prejudices, which I think a lot of us are terrified to do, you know, yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. but just be willing to own your mistakes and your missteps and demonstrate a little bit of trust in, in the people you'll be interacting with, that, that they'll be patient with you and understanding mm-hmm. if, if you're open about admitting your mistakes. Yeah, good point. So get out of your comfort zone. Is that, that's what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah. All right, Eric, it's been a pleasure talking to you. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Sure. Uh, so let's see, they can find me at uh, eric at openroadsmedia.org. That's plural. So eric at openroadsmedia.org. They can also uh, check out my podcast at latitudeadjustmentpod.com. And there's plenty of information there about following us on social media. So they can find me through that sure. Twitter or Facebook group, all that stuff. Okay, fantastic. All right. Thanks for taking the time um, out of your, I'm not sure if it's a busy schedule, but anyways, out of your schedule to uh, to have <laughs> this talk with us, this interview. And I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. Hope so. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Eric. Again, if you have not uh, subscribed to this podcast, you can do so. Um, in iTunes and uh, leave me a a five-star rating if you want, please. That would be great. Thank you. You can also get this podcast on Stitcher, um, on Spotify, and recently it was added to Alexa. So if you have an Alexa at home, just say, Alexa, play Culture Matters, and this podcast comes up. All right, another great way to listen as well. The music that you heard in the background or hearing in the background is from Bensound. Check it out at bensound.com. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast, and I'll be back in two weeks' time. Thank you. Bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.